I guess it was three Wednesdays ago, wasn't it, that we uh, dealt with the first four verses of chapter 2, and um, we're following a, a simple homespun outline by J. Vernon McGee, and we have here in uh, chapter 2 a pattern for Christian living. In the first four verses, the Apostle Paul dealt with uh, a, a real basic principle for any church. Uh, if any church is going to be a good church, it has to follow this principle, and that's to think of others. And if you go into a church and everyone's just kind of concerned about their own welfare and their own state of affairs and things, that's, um, that, in my opinion, is, is not the best church to be in. But where people are thinking about each other and caring for others, that, I think, is the uh, foundation principle, of course, after salvation, where we care. It's like a family uh, attitude there in the church. And so he says in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Boy, that's good. You know, uh, the nations of the world would lay down their weapons of war if everyone adopted that attitude right there. And verse 4 is where we left off. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And the idea is to care for others and their situation, their burdens, and the things that are of concern to them, that the family look after itself. Well, tonight we're going to uh, attempt to get from verse 5 through to verse 11. I think we can do it. And uh, we've sort of given this a, a little um, sub-theme of the mind of Christ or having the mind of Christ. This is a very important uh, passage tonight. I'm so glad you're here tonight. This is one of the, the Christian classics, is this portion of Scripture here. And it's well um, preached. It's well expounded uh, by countless uh, pastors, Bible teachers, preachers, all down through the couple thousand years now. Uh, many, many is the time um, a pastor or preacher will, will turn to Philippians chapter 2 and will we'll deal with this section here. So it's extremely important for our lives. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll jump into verse 5. Heavenly Father, bless our study tonight. Help us, Lord, to learn this thing, this mind of Christ. What does that mean and how it applies to our lives? Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed take the word and apply it to our hearts tonight. Please protect us here in your house. Help us to concentrate and to focus our thoughts upon what you have for us rather than uh, things outside the building or distractions. Help us to give a, a good, clear, pure mind and attention now to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 5, it begins, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And you say, what mind is that? You notice after the name Jesus, there's a, a colon, two dots, one over top of the other. He's about to tell us what that mind is. But let me ask you something. Is there a better way of thinking than that of Jesus Christ? Is there a better mind? If there is, tell me. Is there a better way of thinking? God told us in the book of Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. Jesus Christ is God come down to earth in the flesh. And the mind of Christ is the greatest mind. It's the greatest way to think. Wow. How are you, how are you doing with your mind? Does your mind sometimes give you trouble? Do you sometimes have problems with your mind? Does your mind start entertaining thoughts that sometimes you say, Whoa, where'd that come from? Maybe it's happened to you where you've been driving your car down the freeway and all these cars passing you. And you may be doing 100 kilometers an hour and they're passing you at 100 kilometers. Do you realize that a head-on impact would be the same as hitting a brick wall at 200 kilometers an hour? Boom! And as you're driving down, all of a sudden you have this thought of turning the wheel into the oncoming traffic. Now, I'm not going to ask how many have had that thought. You might think, oh, only a crazy person would have that thought. But I'm telling you, a lot of people, that thought has gone through the heads of a lot of people. I'm not going to ask here who has ever thought of suicide. But I'm telling you, a lot, a lot of absolutely normal, wonderful people have had that thought cross their mind. I'm not going to ask you here who's, who's ever had a, uh, a greedy thought or a lustful thought or a, an evil thought or a murderous thought even. But I'll tell you what, normal, everyday, good people sometimes have thoughts like that. Say, wow, where'd that come from? Well, it didn't come from Jesus. I tell you that. You and I, we need to have this mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is perfect, absolutely at peace, and it's lovely in every way. And so we move into verse 6, because here begins the description here of the mind of Christ. And this is what he's trying to get across to us. The Apostle Paul is trying to tell us something here. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. A couple of words I want to point out here. Number one is the word form. The word form uh, is a, a word that means like a, a, a mold of something. Uh, the Greek word behind it is morphe. Um, and uh, the, the idea is a mold. You have a, an original and you duplicate that. And now you've got this, this form, this mold, if you will. And God has a, has a form and that form is Jesus Christ. Who being in the form of God. <clears throat> You see, the truth is, Jesus is God. Don't let anyone change your mind on this. This is, this is key. This is important. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is absolutely the Jesus of the New Testament. He is, he is, he is. Time and time and time again, we've got God in the Old Testament revealing who he is and his character qualities. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus revealing those same character qualities. Those same key words. In uh, John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You've seen, you want to know who the Father is? You want to see the Father? Just take a look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now that, that comes, just that right about comes out and just says, I am the Father. I am God. The Father and I are one. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. John tells us right away what the Word was. Now, 
uh, if you turn just a couple pages to the right into the book of Colossians, we'll go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, I want to show you a verse in chapter 2 that's one of the more powerful verses, single verses that deal with the deity, the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. This verse was so powerful that the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they came to make up their own Bible, they couldn't handle this verse, and so they had to change it. They changed the verse into something that it doesn't say. But in verse 9, I want you to see it. Read it out loud with me. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the deity. That's the deity. All the fullness. The Jehovah's Witnesses changed that to say all the qualities. Now, I suppose that would be deity too. But they downplay it to humanity. They say and they teach that Jesus Christ was an angel. A created being. And so in him, he was a special spirit being, a special angel who became a man. We're not here to talk about what they believe. We're here to talk about what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches here very clearly in, John, in Colossians 2 and verse 9, that in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of God in bodily form. When he was on earth in a body, he was fully and completely God. Absolutely. I wonder if I could find this one for you. It comes to mind, but you'll have to keep your finger or a marker there in Philippians 2 and go into the Old Testament and find, if you would please, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Here we are. Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. Okay. I'm going to ask you to put a finger there and then go back to the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 10. Oh, that's just a convoluted way to study the Bible, isn't it? Hope we don't have more passages. We don't have too many fingers left. John, chapter 10, and Ezekiel, chapter 34. Now, uh, just to give you a little context here, in, um, in chapter uh, 34, we have uh, God um, chastening or chastising the, uh, the, the priests, the prophets, basically the, the shepherds of God's flock. And he was um, judging them for their cruelty. Back in verse 4, he says at the end, but with force and with cruelty have he ruled them. And so that's how they were treating the people of God. And verse 5, and they were scattered. See that? They were scattered because there was there's no shepherd. Now, look please at verse 11. Verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God. Now the Lord God, that's Jehovah. That's absolutely a reference to Jehovah. Those two uh, titles there capital L, little o, little r, little d, is a, a reference to Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word translated Lord. And then capital G, capital O, capital D is a Hebrew word behind that. And that is Jehovah. And so we have here Adonai Jehovah. 
For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. You see that? So Jehovah is saying that I will search my sheep and seek them out. Now go to John chapter 10. And John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus speaking, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Um, we'll not take the time to read more verses. There's, there's a passage here, but you get the idea. The Lord Jesus didn't say this. He didn't just come up with this idea of being a, a shepherd, and he, came up, he coined a new phrase here. No, no. He was talking to Jews who understood and knew the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel 34, Jehovah was to seek the sheep. And so here's Jesus presenting himself to the nation Israel and saying, I am that shepherd. You see, in different ways, he was teaching them that he is Jehovah God. And we need to go back now to Philippians and to uh, chapter 2. So Paul is telling us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, so here's Jesus Christ as equal uh, to God as the Father is God, and by the way, the Holy Spirit also. Our God is one God, but eternally existent in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not three gods. They're one God. One God. Now that's hard for our human minds to fathom, but that's okay. We don't have to be able to fathom it. You don't have to understand all of the chemical process when you take a, a prescription medication, you take a pill that the doctor prescribes for you, you don't have to understand all of the chemical equations and what happens inside the body. You just have to know enough to, to take it. You may not know all there is to know about your car to be able to drive it to church. You just need to have a license and a key and away you go, a tank of gas, I guess. Boy, it's getting expensive for gas, isn't it? Nah, it's going to be $2 before you know it. And the sale of electric cars is going up, up, up. Well, so is bicycles too, I think. Well, it says in verse 6, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You see that? There it is again. We're hitting this same theme. Equality with God. Well, how do you describe God? He's omniscient, means he knows everything. He's omnipresent, it means he's everywhere at the same time. And he's omnipotent, meaning he has all power. And Jesus is equal. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he is omnipotent. And before Jesus uh, went back to heaven, he rose from the grave, he went back to heaven. He said in Matthew 28, he said, all power is given unto me. He's got it all, folks. I believe that he laid down a bunch of that power when he became uh, a human. There are certain things that he set aside, and we're going to look at that tonight. We're not going to look at all the things he set aside, but we're going to look at the principle of it. And so, here we find that Jesus uh, not only has the form of God, but he is equal with God. And so, again, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. Supposing that uh, someone came up to you 
and uh, took something from you. We, we call them a thief or a robber. Take something that doesn't belong to them. How many have ever been robbed? Anyone? Oh, a few of us, okay. Alright, have you ever had your wallet or purse stolen? Okay, three people. So someone who didn't own it took it. And it was not theirs, it was yours. That's, that's robbery. But what if it was their purse or their wallet? And somehow you'd, you'd gotten the wrong one. And they just took what was theirs. Would that be robbery? No. It has happened where in a restaurant someone has uh, finished their meal and gotten uh, up and went to the, the coat rack and put on a coat that they thought was theirs but was not theirs. And then coming up behind them was the owner of that coat saying, I'll take that, thank you. Are they a thief? Are they a robber? No. They're taking what's theirs. Now some people when they, they say, now Jesus is trying to say he's God, and that's not right, because he's not God. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's exactly what they, uh, they teach. That Jesus is not God, and for, for us to say he is God, well, we're, we're, they say we're saying blasphemy. But I'll tell you what, to say he's not God is blasphemy. That is the truth. But Jesus didn't try and, and, and take upon him deity, something that wasn't his, he already had it. He already was deity. Now, if I came up to one of you, maybe Pastor Deviant here, and I said, uh, you're not Pastor Deviant. You just look like him. You're a clever imitation. You, sir, are a wind-up. Someone put a key in your back and, and wound you up, and there you are. You look like Pastor Deviant, but you're not. What did you do with Pastor Deviant? Well, that sounds silly, doesn't it? He'd say, what are you talking about? I am Pastor Deviant. Here, I'll get up my wallet. There's my driver's license. Look, here's my credit card. You know, look, here's the wanted poster that the police issued for me. See? That's my picture right there. I'm just teasing on that last one. Okay. But he can prove who he is. He could prick his finger, take some blood, and get a DNA test. We could check his fingerprints. You know, we could bring in witnesses. We could prove, no, he is who he says he is. So it's not robbery when he claims that he's Pastor Deviant. Jesus did not rob when he claimed he was equal with God. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The Father and I are one. It doesn't mean one in purpose, because folks, you and I can be one in purpose with God. Jesus is much greater than that. He is God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing we learn here is the deity of Jesus Christ. So make sure that no one ever trips you up on that. This is key. This is so very vital and important. You trip up on that, and you're going to open the door to uh, a number of other doctrinal mistakes. But that one is key, key, key. No one can get born again if they do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. If someone just believes that Jesus was a created being, uh, they're not going to get saved. You see, a created being really cannot die for the sin of the world. It's impossible. Only, G only God can, and, and Jesus is God. 
In fact, I'll tell you what, uh, Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, when he says, well, I don't, I don't believe that he's alive. Remember after the resurrection? No, 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 that's impossible. Unless I can put my finger, you know, in the print there and thrust my hand in that, that wound in his side, I will not believe. Remember reading that? And a week later, Jesus shows up and says, Here, here's my hands, Thomas, you know, and here's my side, and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas didn't, did not put his finger in those prints, and he did not reach his hand in the ribbon side. Rather, he said, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognized the deity of Jesus Christ. Over in the book of Revelation, you've got an angel talking to John, and John fell on his knees and was going to worship this angel. And the angel stopped him and says, no, 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 what are you doing? I'm like you, he says. No, 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 worship God. So only God is to be worshipped. So this is very key, very important. Jesus is God, being in the form of God. And by the way, if you look at it, who being, you see the last three letters on the word being? What are they? Say it with me. I-N-G. That's a present tense. We, we put those three letters on the end of a word to show that it's continuous action. So, to be, the verb to be, uh, is that past tense, present tense, future tense, what is that? Well, when you put ing on the end of be, you got being, and that's continued state. He still is God. He's always been God. He always will be God. He still is God. Very interesting, isn't it? Present active participle. He still is God. And so, having the mind of Christ in verse 5, means that believing that Jesus is God of very God. So when Jesus knocks on a man's heart's door and says, may I come in and forgive your sin, may I come in and be your Savior, your Lord and your God. You see, that's God now we're talking, knocking on the heart's door. It's not some angel created being. This is God himself knocking on a man's door of his heart. And so, if you've received Jesus Christ into your heart as Savior, it means you've received God into your life. It means that also you've become a child of God. Um, but also, something else, In we get into verse 7 here, and it means being a servant. So, verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. This is when he came to earth in his dignified, glorified state in heaven. He is absolutely God. And when he shows up, all, anything, bows before him. But he came to earth and he took upon him the form of a servant. And so he was born of the Virgin Mary. There was no human father. It was an act of God. A miracle. This is how also he avoided any contamination with uh, the sin nature. But it says here, he made himself of no reputation. Sometimes we get concerned about our reputation and we like to be well thought of and we like people to treat us well. And that has to do with reputation. 
And if we're going to have the mind of Christ, we need to start to divorce ourselves from this idea of having a reputation. Someone once said, you take care of your character. You become Christ-like. Take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. Face it, there are people in this world, no matter what you do, they will hate you. Many people will hate you simply because you're born again. And they re it, when, when you're around them, they don't like you because you remind them of God. And they hate God. And so they see you, they just despise you and they want to be away from you. And that happens. Sometimes within a, a second or two seconds of meeting someone, you've never met them before. But somehow, in your heart, your soul, your spirit, there's just some kind of chemical explosion. There's some kind of spiritual thing going on. I'm sure the devil's got something to do with it. But people that have a real hatred for God, when you show up, all of a sudden, oh, you know, it, it's like repugnant. They feel like, oh, they're cornered or slapped in the face or something. I think Cain and Abel had this problem. Because Abel loved God. And he worshipped God and followed what God had to say. And Cain, his, his elder brother, his own brother, hated God and turned his back on God. And so there's Abel. Goody two-shoes Abel. Always trying to suck up to God. And by the way, that's how some people view it today. Some uh, uh, atheists, some evolutionists and so on, they would look upon us saying, oh, you go to church twice on Sundays. You're trying to suck up to God. That's all you're trying to do. And they haven't a clue what they're talking about. We go to church, not just twice on Sundays, but on Wednesdays too. Yeah. And we get alone with God during the every day, and we open the Bible, and we read His Word, and we get on our knees and we pray. We're not trying to suck up to God. We're trying to draw close to Him. Because He loves us, and we love Him. It's a love relationship. And so... We need to work on our character. And this mind here says Christ is God. And we need to start to divorce ourselves from a reputation. It's nice if people think of you nicely. It's nice if they talk nice about you. But if they don't, it's still okay. We need to not con concentrate on a reputation. Because you see, this is what Jesus did in verse 7. Now this verse here is known amongst theologians as the great kenosis passage. Kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. It's from a Greek word, kenosis. And the idea means to empty or to diminish. To empty or diminish. And this is what Christ did. This is the great emptying or the great kenosis passage where Christ laid aside his royal robes of deity in glory. Now he never stopped being God. Don't make that mistake. He was fully God. At the same time he was fully man. But he laid aside his glory. Somehow laid aside certain things. And he became one of us. He emptied himself. That's the idea of the kenosis. And in verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. That's the idea there. The kenosis. And he became a servant. He took upon him the form of a servant. Now you've probably, if you've been in this church for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard me mention this, that we need to be servants of Christ. We need to have servant's heart and attitude. 
In fact, the first four verses, isn't that what Paul is talking about in chapter 2, the first four verses, we ought to care one for another? And when someone has a stumble or a, a pain or a problem, we ought to get in there and try and do what we can to help. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we try and help one another. That's why we'll, we'll put our arm around someone's shoulder and maybe even, you know, cry and weep along with them. So we have to have this mind of Christ where we make ourselves of no reputation. We take upon us the form of a servant and it says here he was made in likeness of men. And now, what else does it mean having the mind of Christ? Well, of course, number one, it means believing Christ is God. We're going to follow him. He's our example. But number two, it means being a servant. Number three, it means humbling ourselves. In verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. If you ever wonder what God's will for your life is, it's right here. It's so evident, it's so plain, a child could understand this. That we're to uh, empty ourselves, we're to become servants, and we're to become obedient. Obedient to God, of course. So, in verse 8, it says here, he humbled himself. Did you know that you cannot serve God if you're not humble? There's no room for pride in uh, the ranks of the redeemed. The book of James tells us, God resisteth the proud. If you're here tonight and you're born again, you know you're saved, part of God's family, but you're just always, it seems like you're pressing against a brick wall. It seems that, ah, oh, you can never get anywhere, nothing really seems to be happening. Check your heart, see if it's humble or see if it's proud. So how do I do that? Well, the Holy Spirit really has to help you. And the Holy Spirit will guide you. You get alone with God and you say, God, show me. Have I got a problem with, with pride? Am I not being humble? Show me, show me, Lord. You read scripture, you pray, the Holy Spirit will show you. Maybe there's some area of pride. Maybe it's your good looks, and you're proud of your good looks. Maybe it's your financial status in the community, and that's your area of pride. Maybe it's something else, a physical thing, like you've got a car, and you're proud. You're proud you've got that thing. Maybe it's even something like uh, uh, being married or having children or something, and that's your source of pride. Well, that's where the devil's going to get us. As soon as we have an area of pride, we've got a, what we call an Achilles heel. That's an old Greek mythology uh, term where this, this guy Achilles, as a baby, he was dipped in some formula or a river or something, uh, and he became invincible, except, I, I don't know, was it his mother supposedly dipped him, was holding him by the heel. And so everything got coated. He was invincible except his heel. His heel was mortal. And so in battle, sure enough, an arrow hit him in the heel. And apparently that's what killed him. That's why we call it an Achilles heel. If you have an area of pride, you know, for example, maybe ladies, your husband is your area of pride. He's your hero. He's your knight in shining armor. And so if someone were to say something uh, mean or nasty about him, of course it's going to hurt. But, do you fly into a ballistic rage? Or maybe possibly it's your children, or your job, or as I say, or uh, your reputation. If someone accuses you of 
of uh, lying or cheating or being lazy or something. And this is your area of pride. Do you explode with anger? Because that may be an indication that you have a pride in that area. Humble people, they can still be hurt. Humble people, they'll still bleed when you prick them. But they're not going to draw out knives and try and kill you. And usually if there's a, uh, an explosion of anger towards someone for some comment they've made or something they've done to you, it could be an area of pride. Look how they treated Jesus and how he responded. So he's our example. And so we need to take this very seriously as we humble ourselves. And you say, well, how long do I have to humble myself for? Uh, a couple of years, maybe? That's a long time to be humble. How, much, how long should I be humble? And the question's answered for us in verse 8. So it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, what's that word? Death. Death. Until you die. That's how long you need to be humble. Until you die. Jesus was certainly humble, wasn't he? Right up until he died. And that's as far as you can take it. That's as far as you need to take it. Because after that, then you leave the sin nature behind. You won't have a problem. But as long as we draw breath, we need to be humble. Now that doesn't mean that we can't be tempted. Uh, the most humble Christian in the world can still be tempted to come out of their humility and act in the flesh. We need to walk with the Lord. We need to have the mind of Christ. You'll only get the mind of Christ as you walk with the Lord. And I think the best place to get the mind of Christ is uh, in your prayer closet. Well, having the mind of, of Christ then would mean, number one, knowing that Jesus is God Almighty, knowing that you're a child of God because you have him in you. But the, more of the idea is he's our example. He is our, our heavenly, godly, perfect example. Having the mind of Christ is going to know that he's the teacher. He's the pattern I need to follow, what I need to become. Number two, just as he set aside his reputation, so we need to set aside our reputation too. And we need to become uh, like a servant. That's our, our, our calling, folks. That's our job. When we come to church, our, our object is not to be served, but our object is to serve. To serve. If you went into a restaurant, went, maybe this has happened to someone here. You went into a restaurant, there's other people sitting at tables, and there's a waitress and waiter and whatever, and you sit down at a table, and you wait, and the waitress walks right by. And you go, okay. And then a minute later, she walks by you again. And she walks by, and you try and get her attention. She ignores you and walks right by. And this goes on for about 15 minutes. How are you feeling? Are you feeling waited upon? Are you feeling served? Chances are no. You're feeling ignored. And you're thinking, ah, if they want my business, they better snap to it and, and give me some service. Service around here. Service. Well, sometimes we carry that attitude in life. Into the church even. And we want to be served. And if someone doesn't shake our hand or say hello, we get offended. Well, that's not the attitude for a servant. 
You know, the, the waiters, the waitresses, they're supposed to be our servants in the restaurant. We're not supposed to serve them. They're supposed to serve us. That's what we're paying for, right? That's the whole idea of having a waiter to wait upon you or a waitress. You're supposed to get some service. Ah, get it yourself. What kind of restaurant would that be? Hmm? You're hungry? Yeah, right. So is everyone else. Go back in the kitchen, make something, eat it, and then pay for it on the way out. I'm not going to do that. I came in here to, to be served. And so we need also to have a, a no reputation mindset. We also need to have a, a servant kind of mindset. And uh, not just at church either. And then of course number three, if we're going to have the, the mind of Christ, we need to obey what God tells us to do. Well how long do we need to be obedient to God? All our life. It's for our protection and for our blessing, for our growth, and so that he can, he can open to us the windows of heaven. Remember, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace? I don't need grace. I need money. No, you need grace. Because with grace will come the money you need. It'll come the help you need. It'll come the favor you need with your employer. Grace is everything you need. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And so, verse 9, Wherefore God... See, here's what I want you to see. That God rewards His servants. If you will follow Christ's pattern, if you will develop the mind of Christ, it's worth it. Because God rewards. Verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means this. Every atheist who screams and cries that there is no God will one day bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Every evolutionist who's laughed in the face of, of God and the Bible, will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Every follower of every strange religion will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. This is how highly God has exalted him. You see, according to your sufferings and according to your obedience and according to your mind of Christ is how accordingly God will reward you. It's very important we realize that this world is not our home. Our reward hasn't come yet. Our ticker tape parade is waiting for us up in heaven. When we get to heaven, that's when we're going to cash in. But in order to cash in, you have to have some kind of investment going down here on earth. That's why we have to invest our time into the Lord, our treasures into the Lord, our talents into the Lord. As we make these investments, boy, we're going to have a big payday in heaven. That's the promise of Almighty God. There's a, a true story about Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, as he was known. How many have ever heard of a teddy bear? Teddy bear, anyone? Yes? Okay, it's been named after Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was a real outdoors guy. He was one of the presidents of the United States. He was a very uh, 
fitness kind of guy. He was a sickly child, but he got into fitness, and that's what gave him re restored health. He ended up as a politician, became president of the United States, and uh, he loved hunting, and he loved to uh, go over to Africa and do some big game hunting. Well, after he was um, defeated uh, for re-election, he started to you know, become a public speaker and so on, and sort of semi-retirement. But he went over to Africa, and he did a bunch of game hunting. And so he was on the ship coming back to America. On the same ship coming back to America was an old Christian couple. They didn't know Teddy Roosevelt was on board the ship. Not many people did. And so they were missionaries. They had given 50 years of their lives serving the Lord in Africa. They had, they had studied, they had felt the call of God, they would given their whole life, basically, to reaching people with the gospel, helping them medically, of course, getting a churches, churches started, and they were retiring. And so they were on the ship coming back to America. And as the ship came into port, there was a huge crowd gathered uh, on the dock. And there was a lot of excitement going. And there was a band playing. And the, the old missionary looked at it, and he looked at his wife, and he said, Honey, look, they're welcoming us home. This is fantastic, he said to his wife. And his, his dear wife had somehow learned that... Uh, no, sorry, I, I, I'm ahead of myself a little bit. As the boat docked, and there was Teddy Roosevelt starting to come down the gangplank, all of the people on board, there's hundreds of people on board, and there's the old missionary couple, and they saw Teddy Roosevelt go down, and they realized that was whom the big crowd was waiting for. That was whom the big band was playing for. Not them, Teddy Roosevelt. And the old man looked at this and his heart sank. And he said to his wife, it's not fair. It's not fair. We give our whole lives 50 years serving over in Africa. Serving. He goes over and shoots an animal. And he comes back to a big welcome, a hero's welcome. We get home and what's waiting for us? No one. And his wife then said to him, But dear, we're not home yet. And that's the truth. And this world, they don't look upon Christians as as anything important. They look upon us as just crazy, foolish, whatever you have. But we're not home yet. And when we get to our home up in heaven, that's where Jesus Christ, God of very God, is going to stand and give us an ovation. That's where an untold number of angels and saints are going to cheer and applaud here they come, here they come. If we'll have the mind of Christ.
Now, if we live for ourselves and for the world and for what we can get, don't count on there being any kind of big welcome when you get to heaven. But you live for Jesus Christ. You have the mind of Christ. And you will have a hero's welcome when you get home to heaven. Isn't that encouraging? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Pray with me now.